Assalamualaikum, our Hardy Youth Podcast listeners. My name is Alia and I'm hosting today's podcast and I am joined by Sabiha, the newest member of the podcast team. Assalamualaikum, Sabiha. Assalamualaikum, Salam, Alia. I'm so excited to be here. Um, so we're looking at a really interesting topic today. We're looking at Islam and evolution and how we can actually look at them side by side rather than seeing them as two completely different ideas. Um, so yeah, Alia, carry on. And so we were so lucky to be joined by Sister Fatima, who's written two really great papers on evolution and Islam, which we will definitely link in our description. But she really unpacks how we as Muslims can deal with this topic and she breaks it down into really manageable chunks. So if this is a topic that has ever sparked an iota of interest within you, we would really implore you to give this a listen. And as always, let us know how we at the podcast team can better serve you. We are always looking for feedback. And if you are on the YouTube page, if you could like, comment, leave us some feedback, anything, subscribe to the channel, it will really help us and let us know that you do enjoy what we're doing and that we can carry on and maybe even do a part two if you guys do really like it. Yeah, exactly. So grab a cup of tea and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Sister Fatima, thank you so much for joining us today. Waalaikum salam. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this, inshallah. Yeah, we were so excited to have you on and discuss a topic that Sabiha and I have found quite confusing in the past. So we're excited for you to kind of school us on it. And just before we get started, we have some questions for our listeners to get to know you better. And they're quick fire questions. So we don't want you to think too hard about your answers. And we want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind. All right, I'll do my best, inshallah. And truthfully, no holding back. (laughs) So this is a really big question. So what is your favorite podcast right now? You know what? I'm not a huge podcast person, but if I had to choose one, then I would put it in the slogan for the institute that I work with, Mizan Institute. Um, there's some great podcasts on there. <laughs> there are. I have actually listened to quite a few of there, so we will allow you that you didn't say our podcast just this one time. Um, our second question is, as a fellow Kojal, how do you like your tea, your chai actually, Mori or Mitty? Oh, definitely Mori. I used to be Mitty, but in the past few years, I, I cut up sugar. So I really love Mori chai and I'm sitting here with a cup of chai right now. So alhamdulillah. <laughs> okay, so your final question. If you had one meal, one last meal on earth, what would you have? Oh, that's tough. That's yeah, tough. That's I feel really like tough. cheesecake, which is not a meal, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one part of it. That's meal. a good answer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would you just have like a plain vanilla cheesecake? Yeah, New York cheesecake is definitely best, but I would have that with chai. Like, I feel like that would be my last. Yeah, that would be a good way to go. Yeah, <laughs> that would be. Though I would have Mitty chai, not Mori. Oh, hundred so percent. I would correct. We'll have, to, yeah. we'll have to disagree there. You know, the caffeine is actually a lot more potent if you don't have sugar, because then you don't have a sugar crash. So I feel like you benefit from the caffeine and oh. a lot more when you when you take the sugar out. But that's just. Oh, uh, and I like the sugar crash though at the end. So. <laughs> that's what I crave <laughs> okay so now to talk about what even though I would love to ask you these quick fire questions um to get to know you more now let's get to what we're here to talk about today which is evolution in Islam and just to kick it off um and just so our um listeners know sister Fatima has written two very extensive papers on evolution and Islam and how we can grapple with it and I just wanted to uh, start by asking how did you become interested in this topic what motivated you to write those papers 
Yeah, that's a, it's a really great question. And the truth is that it was actually very unintentional. Um, so what had happened was back in the day when I was in Jamata Zahra and I was doing my, my master's in Tafsir, the way that our program was set up was that every term we had about five to six classes. And of those five to six classes, for three of them, we had to write a term paper. Um, and so a lot of the classes were on different topics. And one of the classes that I had was actually about Quran and science. And so it was talking about, you know, the history of Quran and science, how different scholars have grappled with it, different issues that have come up along the centuries in terms of, you know, different interpretations of certain verses and interpreting them um, in a scientific way. If we can do that, how do we approach the Quran with science? Do we approach it as a scientific, you know, text? Do we take things very literally and then, you know, try to derive science from it? And a lot of those um, nuances, some of which I went through in my paper. And when it came to the research paper, one of the nice things, alhamdulillah, was that we were able to choose a topic that we wanted to research. And I'm a very, um, I'm, I'm very geeky in a lot of different ways. Um, and so when I was trying to choose a topic, I didn't just want to choose like a very easy topic. I wanted to choose something that I genuinely wanted to figure out the answer to. And evolution had always interested me. Um, and I, I didn't go into it expecting, I think, to come out with this. And when I started to write it, it was five to six years ago. So um, I'd written it for that class and I'd, you know, finished it and, you know, Alhamdulillah done a good chunk of research for it. And then when COVID hit last year, I was dealt with time that I didn't know I had, um, Alhamdulillah. And so when I had that amount of time, it was something that I was always meaning to go back to edit and then publish. And I just never had gotten around to it. So Alhamdulillah, I got back into it and I managed to, you know, edit it. And then I got into it again. And then I started to add more and more and more. And instead, I think I ended up with like double the size of the paper that I had originally gone in with. Um, but it was very unintentional. I mean, I really enjoyed the topic, but it wasn't something that I had ever gone in with the intention that like, okay, I'm going to like go and write this paper and then publish it. And it just kind of became something other than what I had had intended, if I'm being honest, but Alhamdulillah, there's a lot, there was a lot of barakah um, and blessings in it. And it was a, a really beneficial journey for myself as well. Alhamdulillah. It's great to see that there is a silver lining of COVID and that, you know, you got some extra time on your hands and did something productive with it because I know I had loads of resolutions and I, I didn't quite do anything as productive. Um, just to kind of lay some groundwork for people listening who probably haven't heard about evolution since, you know, year nine science, what is kind of the basic theory of evolution as we are kind of taught in the mainstream and really like really dumb it down for us here? Yeah, I mean, the, the basic premise is that all organisms are rooted in one type of family and that all of the species that we see today have kind of come from a long tree, so to speak. Um, and so like, you know, different species have kind of branched off into different ones, but basically this idea that we're all somehow interrelated. Um, now, there's a lot of science behind evolution, and I, I would be very... Um, arrogant to think that I could explain it um, in a podcast. Um, and it's very interesting. There's like a lot of different areas of evidence that are used to um, explain evolution or to explain this idea um, from fossil evidence, because we have tons of fossils that have been discovered that, you know, show um, how over time, originally organisms were very simple. And then over time, they seem to get more and more complicated. So this trajectory of like, you know, simplicity to complexity seems to indicate a type of, you know, growth or 
um, you know, change over time, so to speak. So that's where a lot of the evidence for evolution comes from. But that's not the only piece of evidence. There's also evidence like genetic evidence, which is, in my opinion, one of the most compelling pieces of evidence um, for evolution. So you have a lot of these different lines of evidence that kind of come together to um, build this narrative of evolution. And what makes it controversial isn't necessarily the idea that this exists, because we know that in Islam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala works through um, causes and effects, right? So we don't have any problem believing that. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to create the universe using the process of evolution, it wouldn't cause a huge theological conundrum for us. But where it becomes an issue, and this is the focus of the paper, um, isn't with regards to animals or other species, so to speak. It has specifically to do with our creation as human beings. And this idea that us as Bani Adam um, or the, the tribe of Adam السلام, what, what is it that makes us different? And can is it possible to say that we as a human species, as Insan, as Bani Adam, that we are also a part of this evolutionary process? And so, if we're looking scripturally at the Quran or at anything really, there isn't really a huge issue to believe that, for example, all other animals come from this process of evolution. That wouldn't be something that the Quran would even speak about, right? Because it's not primarily a scientific text. Um, but what it does speak about is the creation of human beings or the creation of Prophet Adam And so that's where the tension and tension, I say intentionally, um, because it's not necessarily a contradiction either, right? It's just this tension that we kind of need to try to figure out. And that's the main topic of the paper. Um, so I know that that's a very short summary of what the issues with evolution and to kind of really bring it down to the bare bones of it. Um, but yeah, inshallah. So it's interesting that you said that, that like um, there is that ten tension um between like scientific timelines and islamic timelines because i feel like evolution as a theory like especially when i spoke to my mom about like the podcast and what we were doing she was very much like associating the whole theory of evolution with atheism and kind of removing god completely from a theory of evolution so how would you say that like we would answer questions such as was prophet Adam the first man on earth or like um what happened in higher dimensions to for us to end up on earth rather than end up just staying in heaven or hell like how would you combat those issues where I'm not trying to say this how would you answer questions of bringing religion into evolution rather than having evolution completely associated with atheism it's a really excellent question and I think when we're when we're discussing this topic or this idea of how evolution has really if we want to use a certain word, maybe it's not the wisest word to use here, but it's almost hijacked by atheists or by those who are somehow, you know, trying to argue for um, no existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God forbid. Um, it has taken on this narrative and that's why it's become so controversial. But I think there's a difference between when we're looking at the science of evolution and then we're looking at the implications or the ways in which someone or a group of people have taken a certain concept and then run with it. You know, so we have this a lot in our lives as well, where maybe there's a certain concept that's true, you know, um, and it's not, it's not controversial, but then a certain group of people will take something and then they'll run with it and maybe even take certain meanings from it that don't actually exist in it to begin with. 
So the thing with evolution is that if you're looking at the actual science of it, it doesn't have anything to say about, for example, where does life come from? You know, it doesn't have anything to say. It's just describing the process by which species have come about. So if we're looking purely at it from the empirical sense of it, it's not explaining anything about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because it has nothing almost to do with the arguments for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When we're looking to prove the existence of God, we don't use like, you know, if, if I want to prove the existence of God, I don't look to a fossil and tell me, okay, this fossil is going to tell me whether Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists or not. I'm going through, um, you know, arguments, theological arguments. I'm thinking about, okay, well, what's the cause of all causes? What has set this world into motion? And looking at the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from that angle. And that doesn't really overlap with what we're looking at when we're looking at the science of things. So when a lot of atheists kind of take it and run with it, the area that they usually focus on has to do with the contradictions between the like scriptural texts. So for example, with the Christian world, especially one of the reasons why you'll see that a lot of atheists will kind of um, bring it as a as a contradiction is that when you look at biblical literature, you'll see very detailed descriptions of how Prophet Adam and Islam was created or how human beings were or the way the world was created in six days. And they're very um, explicit. So a lot of times you'll see that, okay, people saying that, well, look, this can't be true. This is, this is false. You know, we know that this is empirically false information. So this means that this text is no longer valid, but this is used often as a type of ammunition, I would say for atheists, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's this truth to the idea that, okay, if evolution is true, that somehow negates the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because they're really different realms. They don't, they're talking about two entirely different things. Um, and if you're interested in, in looking at this more, there's a really nice um, lecture series on the Academy of Learning Islam by Sheikh Murtada Bachu, where he gets into this in a little bit more detail, um, where he kind of distinguishes between the two and how really they shouldn't, they don't cause this tension even though it has again been hijacked to kind of create this tension, so to speak. Thank you. No, we'll definitely check that out and we'll definitely add it to our description so people can find it easily. And I think what you said about how they don't have to be in conflict and maybe this tension that we see is a very much manufactured tension. And I think there's definitely been an industry, um, especially a lot of literature has been coming out, making it more of a tension than perhaps it needs to be or, or even is. And you spoke um, about how biblical scripture is very specific about the creation story and how this contradicts with um, evolutionary theories. What does the Quran say about evolution and how can we, well, yeah, so sorry, what does the Quran say about evolution? And is it, does it disagree with evolution? Does it say anything? Can you like tease that out for us a bit? Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, I forgot to mention it in what I was saying previously as well. <laughs> but there, there is a certain level of tension when it does come to the creation of Prophet Adam alayhi salam and uh, the current human population, right? So when we're looking at what current evolutionary theory or evolutionary biologists say about our existence or us as human beings um, or homo sapiens, there is this idea that, look, we, we all come from a population of previous hominids. So not to necessarily get into the nitty gritty, but essentially meaning that we don't have a source of two parents. Do you know what I mean? So like there isn't this idea within evolutionary theory that, okay, somehow we are the progeny of only two individuals 
who were miraculously created. So this is why there is that level of tension, especially when it comes to human beings. And this is different from the rest of evolutionary theory, right? Because when you're looking at natural selection or you're looking at speciation, if we're looking at animals, the Quran really doesn't say much. It says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created everything. How did he create everything? He doesn't really spell out the details for us, right? So that could be a part of it. But when yes, it comes yeah, if we if we make that distinction just scripturally, it's very okay. vague when it comes to non-human beings. And when it comes to human beings, there is this idea that, okay, like insan or human beings, our current human population, we are Bani Adam, okay? And the word Bani Adam means that we're the tribe of Adam. And in the Quran, it also says that, you know, um, that like the way that your parents were taken out from the garden. Um, I'm forgetting the exact reference of the verse, but inshallah, I can come to it in a bit. Um, but this uh, this idea that, you know, your parents, uh, it uses this word, which means your parents, i.e. Adam and Hawa, how they were taken out of heaven. So it does use this terminology of our current human population is Bani Adam. There's also um, in Surah An-Nisa, verse one, which is actually a, a very important verse in this discussion, it talks about how human beings were spread from two, right? So it says that we have created you min nafsin wahida, we've created you from one essence. And from that, we have betha minhuma rajalan kathiran wanisa. So from the two of them, we've created many women and many men. And what this verse indicates when you look at it and you read it is that our current human population comes from Adam and Hala alayhi salam. And so when we're looking at the evolutionary theory, there does seem to be this contradiction that, okay, the Quran seems to indicate that our current human population comes from Adam and Hawa and evolutionary science seems to indicate that, no, we are descended from a population of other hominid species. And there's like, you know, the fossil evidence, there's all of this type of evidence. And so that's where the tension lies. Now, what do we do with this, right? Because on the one hand, there's this genetic evidence, there's this different, you know, different explanations of how this comes to be and this idea that, okay, even within our own DNA, if we look at our genetic sequences, we see that there's certain level of genetic sequences that might match with some previous um, homo species, right? So what do we do with that? How do we grapple with that? On the one hand, we have the Quran saying this, on the other, we have that saying this. Now, there's a tension here, but there's not contradiction. And what I mean by tension is that it's not always easy to explain, but it's not impossible to explain. So these two, maybe they don't always fit neatly if you're looking at it on a first angle. But one of the things that I really tried to do in the paper was to show that, look, there is a level of tension, but it's not impossible to have both as true. Where Prophet Adam السلام, and Hawa that they that we are rooted from those two individuals, right? And that they are our parents, and that Adam was miraculously created. This is also um, indicated in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, compares the creation of Adam to the creation of Isa salam. And this is in Surah Al-Imran. That indeed the case of Isa salam, with Allah is like the case of Adam. He created him from dust and then said to him, be, and he was. Now this seems to indicate a miraculous creation of Prophet um, Isa and then Prophet Adam Otherwise the example doesn't work, right? How do you compare the two? If you're gonna say that Prophet Adam was the product of an evolutionary process, it doesn't make sense to make that comparison. 
So how do we bring these two together then, right? Where's the, where's the, I guess you could say unity in seeing both of these things. Now, one of the really interesting things about our Hadith literature is that our Hadith literature actually indicates that there were previous creatures that were human-like. Okay, so there's... That, I, that, so that just has blown my mind. Like me, me and Sabiha were talking about this and we were saying how we didn't even know that that was a possibility. Yeah, and you know, it's it's subhanAllah. I mean, when I was when I was looking at it and I was just like, this is really interesting and it's fascinating because yeah. fossil evidence didn't show up until about 150 years ago. So even when we're looking at... Um, we're looking at the fossil evidence that's used or previous homo, because there's different homo species, right? So we're homo sapiens and then there's other ones as well. Like there's homo neanderthalus, there's the hobbits, there's lots of different homo species, but the first fossil evidence for those didn't show up until about 150 years ago. But in our Hadith literature, which we have from more than a few hundred years ago, it mentions that um, there were previous human-like species and the word used for it in Arabic is nasnas right? So human-like. So you know, like the word nas is for human beings. So nas-nas is kind of like this, like, I don't know, play on words, but like human-like creatures. And the hadith say that um, when when Adam was being created um, and the angels saw the creation of Adam, there's a very famous verse in the Quran where it says that the angels are looking at the creation of Adam and they're asking Allah kind of curiously, like, why are you creating something that's just going to create havoc on earth? So commentators of the Quran and these hadith, they actually mentioned that the reason why the angels thought that the human beings would be like these crazy bloodthirsty creatures was because they had seen other human-like creatures do things like that. And then when they had seen that, they thought that Adam was the same as those creatures. So these hadith are kind of explaining that, look, this is, Adam is different, right? So then there's the verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I know what you don't know. And the story isn't mentioned in the Quran itself. So this is from Hadith literature, but it does show up quite a bit in Hadith literature that, you know, there were these creatures before Adam alayhi salam, but they do say these Hadith, they say that those creatures went extinct. They went extinct. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Adam from a miraculous process. And that us as human beings were descendants from Adam and Hawa and not from those other creatures. So. So I just have two questions. Um, so you said that Prophet Adam is diff was different, that God said, I know what you do not. So in what way would you say that he was different to the, I think it was Homo Neanderthals you said, and I think I've seen images of them. You know how it's like the evolution of like a monkey into like more human features. Is that what that's about? Um, and also, you know how you said that the creation of Prophet um, Adam was similar to Prophet Isa. So Prophet Isa obviously ha had a mother, right? So we believe that Bibi Maryam is the mother of Prophet Isa. So would would that be a would that be a difference between them, or like how would we correlate that? Is that just a something that Prophet Adam wouldn't have, or I don't know? Yeah. Yeah. No. No. That definitely makes sense. Um, I'm going to answer the first question first, and that was with Can you remind? Sorry. Can you repeat it for me one more time? What was different about um, the people that were human-like and Prophet yes. Adam? Yeah, so this is a really good question. I think that this kind of comes to the heart of what we're talking about, right? Because one of the things when you look at empirical science is whenever empirical science is looking and studying these other fossils or these other homo sapiens or other homo neanderthalus or whatever it is, 
they're only able to look at the physical parts of these creatures, right? So if you look at a Homo neanderthalus, what can you what can you look what can you understand from the fossil of a Neanderthal? Right? There's only so much you can understand. You can't understand how did this Neanderthal think? Did this Neanderthal have an aql? Right? Did it have an intellect? Did it even have speech? Even right now, like when we're looking at um, like a lot of scientists, they'll at, they're trying to recreate a Neanderthal's voice box to see, can could a Neanderthal speak in the same way that we could? Or like, could a Neanderthal make the same types of sounds that we could? So we don't know a lot about the intellectual capabilities of these um, previous homo, uh, homo creatures, so to speak. But what we do know is our own creation. We know that one of the unique features of Adam or Bani Adam, so to speak, the Quran says, we've ennobled Bani Adam. Now, what does this mean? It could mean something to do with the aql, right? It could mean something to do with our fitrat, which is something that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to us um, as Bani Adam. These are things that they're not tangibly measurable, right? So I can't look at a previous fossil and tell you, okay, this creature had this, so therefore we're the same, right? There does seem to be something different. What that difference is, I don't know. You know, like it's, that's something that I think we, it, it's very hard to tell because it is metaphysical. And as human beings, as insan, as Bani Adam, there is this metaphysical part of ourselves that we can't measure um, when we look at empirical science. Even this idea of consciousness and how consciousness has developed there isn't really a good answer for these questions, right? It's very, um, it's not something you can test with empirical science. So we don't really know these previous homo species, you know, what what type of consciousness did they have? What type of akla did they have? They're questions that we don't know. And even if we're to look at the, the timeline of Prophet Adam and Hisanam, homo sapiens, the biological way that we look, right, have existed for 300,000 years. And this was another thing that I go into my paper as well. But, you know, are we, are all homo sapiens necessarily from Bani Adam or are there two lines of homo sapiens? You know, one that came from an evolutionary process possibly and one that is from Adam, Anihisanam. And then what's the difference between those two if we wanted to even, you know, say that there's two subgroups of homo sapiens? Um, it's really hard to answer because again, a lot of these things aren't something that we can measure if that makes sense. And then um, your second question was, do you mind repeating that as well for me? Sorry. Um, so there was that um, ayah that Prophet Esau was created the same way that Prophet um, Adam was, like through a miracle, but, um, but we can still like justify in our head that Prophet Esau still has a mother. So that kind of makes sense in our head, right? So would you say that Prophet Adam didn't have anything like that? Or was that just, is that a difference between them or a difference between the way they were created? Yeah, so this is a good question. I mean, the the reason that like where this example comes up in the Quran is when there's a discussion about this idea that Prophet Isa is the, the son of God, right? So it's kind of talking about Christian theology and kind of um, arguing with that or using a form of, um, uh, what do you call it? Like a, a type of argument where they're, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to point out the flaws of the reasoning that they had for believing that Prophet Isa was the son of God and then therefore divine himself. And the line of reasoning here is like, you know, for Christians is that because Prophet Isa didn't have a father, right? He only had a mother. So he's the son of God and therefore he's divine. So what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is doing in this verse is pointing to the logical inconsistency of that, right? Because they're saying that Prophet Isa didn't have a father. Therefore, he's the son of God. So Allah said, okay, what about Adam? 
you don't believe that he had a mother or a father. So why aren't you considering him divine? So it's pointing to a logical inconsistency there, right? So it's not necessarily saying that, okay, Adam is the same in the sense that Adam had a mother, but it's actually saying that, look, at the, the argument is strong if we believe that Prophet Adam didn't have a father or a mother, because then that would point to the logical inconsistency of the argument there. So that's why the argument is strong. And that kind of points to this idea that, okay, well, clearly Allah wouldn't use this example if Adam had parents, it wouldn't make a lot of sense, right? If Adam was the product of um, an evolutionary process, so to speak. That makes so much sense. I've never, I've never thought of it like that. Um, just one last question about this, because you just opened like a whole bucket of worms in my head. Um, so you know how you said that with like biblical scriptures and stuff, evolution actually makes people move away from it. And even in your paper, you mentioned that with Islam, we don't really struggle with that. Like religion doesn't really... Dis, I mean, um, evolution doesn't really disprove religion, um, and the reason that people essentially leave Islam isn't ever due, like, due to evolution or due to science not correlating it with it. And do you believe that the ambigu ambiguity in the Quran and like um, the fact that God doesn't specifically say that things happened a certain way helps people like understand evolution and understand science and religion? Like, would you say that? Like the fact that biblical scriptures are so detailed about it makes people believe less in it. And actually, because religion is so like, or the Quran is so poetic and it's full of parables and like it takes a lot of interpretation and understanding to actually even understand a single word of it or like why God used certain phrases, like keeps Muslims and Islam completely open to like any new scientific discoveries and anything that scientists do come up with. Yeah, and that's a really good question. I mean, I think that there's, obviously, with the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed the Qur'an, it's very intentional. And there's a certain wisdom as to why you, we may not see a lot of details, right? And sometimes this can kind of be like, a, um, I know a lot of Muslims will find this frustrating. It's like, why, doesn't the, why isn't the Qur'an more detailed about all of these different things? And it's actually, is, it's a beautiful thing about the Qur'an, because the Qur'an is trying to get us to focus on our purpose in life. Right, so when it says tibiana likulishay, or it's an explanatory way of everything, it means that it's it's an ex, it's an explanation and a source of guidance for us in terms of the things that matters. You're not going to be able to derive, you know, biology from the Quran, but that's not its point, right? And that's not what Allah Subhanahu wa Taala intended by it. But at the same time, I don't want to entirely throw um, biblical literature under the bus because there's a lot of times where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does speak in um, metaphors or symbolic language, right? So even in the stories that we see in the Quran, sometimes there is a level of symbolism there. And what this goes back to is this struggle between understanding scripture very literally or understanding scripture in a figurative way, right? And this is something that is true whether you're looking at um, biblical texts or you're even looking at some of our hadith literature, Right. So in some of our hadith literature, there's like these stories about creation where it says that, you know, God created the aql and then said to the aql this. And then there's like there's a really long tradition in Al-Kafi, which is actually very interesting. But it says that, you know, like there's certain armies for like certain characteristics and and this type of thing. And it talks about it in a very um, it's obviously in a very almost symbolic way. Or even when you look at the Quran and it says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took a covenant from us before we were born. Like there's a lot of discussions on that. Well, what does that mean? Are we taking it literally or are we taking it symbolically? So I think that there is, there is this struggle 
so to speak, in terms of when do we understand something symbolically and when do we understand it literally. But what's very clear, I think, that we can say is that Prophet Adam salam was not just, it's not just a symbolic story, right? There are certain symbolic features of his story from before he was, before he came down to earth, right? In the creation story itself, but he was a person, right? There's stories that indicate this. It talks about his children, it talks about Qabil, it talks about Habil, it talks about um, him as a person as well. So I think when we're looking at these things, it's, it can be difficult to figure out when it's talking symbolically and when it's talking literally. And that's one of the biggest struggles that I think um, like religious scriptures have kind of uh, gone forward with, even right now with Christian, um, with Christian literature, right? There are people who still believe in the Bible. There are people who still believe in um, the scripture. And at the same time, they also accept evolutionary science, but the way that they've been able to do this is by opting for entirely symbolic meanings of biblical text, right? There is, and I, I don't wanna skirt around it either. There is definitely a lot more explicit things mentioned in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible versus the Quran, which means that they have to explain things a lot more symbolically than we might have to, right? There's a lot more of that. I don't, I don't know if ambiguity is the right word, but a little bit more room to kind of um, stretch some of these stories. but. In our hadith literature, we also have a lot of details. So that's where things become a little bit more um, complicated. I don't know if that answers your question, but inshallah, I hope it does. So that was really interesting what you said. And I think it really points towards kind of how do we read science with scripture? And should we be reading science with scripture? Because a lot of the time, I think what a lot of Muslims often see as like a cop-out in inverted commas is when we say, oh, it's a metaphor. So like, to what extent do we read the Quran in line with science or read science in line with the Quran and in line with Hadith? Like, how do we know when to do it? Is there kind of a rule to follow? How do we kind of grapple with reading them together? Yeah, that's a, that's a really excellent question. And I think really what it comes down to is how we understand the hermen, like how we understand hermeneutics. Now hermeneutics is this fancy word for how do you take meaning from a text? Right. And a lot of the times, like when you look at even traditionally in the Hauza, there's this huge field of something called Usul right, or the principles of jurisprudence. So how do you take meaning from a hadith? How do you take meaning from the Quran? Um, if the Quran is, for example, encouraging like salat al-layl, right? How do you know it means wajib or how do you know it means mustahab? How do you tell the difference between the two, right? So these are definitely discussions that we have within our, um, within the robust like intellectual features of the Hauza, so to speak, or these fields. And there is also the field of usul al-tafsir, right? Which is principles of tafsir. How do we extrapolate meaning from the Quran? How do we understand that it means something symbolically or not? And there's this idea of something called zuhur, um, okay? Um, and the word zuhur basically means the most obvious meaning, okay? So for example, um, I use this example in my paper and you guys are British, so I'm gonna use it again. <laughs> you know, you say like, that's so sick, right? Yes. Um, and I know that that's like a very British thing. And I, I did use that example in the paper because I've always enjoyed it. Um, but when you say that, you know, that's sick, right? Now, imagine if somebody says that to you and they're looking at a phone and they're like, wow, that's sick. Now, you can tell from the context, the most obvious meaning to you is not the literal meaning of something being sick, but it's very <laughs> obviously like, you know, that the phone is, is awesome, right? Confusing. It's confusing. Yeah, it's confusing. So the dhuhur or the most obvious or most apparent thing that you would understand from that is actually a figurative meaning, right? It's not a literal meaning. 
But if you were to have that same thing, but someone was looking at a picture of something disgusting and they're like, that's sick. Like, you know, like that's, and then you would be able to tell that, okay, what's intended here is the actual literal understanding of the word sick, right? But you'd be able to tell, even though it's the same word, you'd be able to tell from the way that it's being used, right? And so vuhur is this idea of like understanding that most obvious meaning from something. Now, when you're looking at the Quran, a principle that we have is that the most obvious or the most apparent meaning is what you're going to take from the Quran, right? So this is going to be your default. Your default understanding of the Quran is going to be the dhuhur or what it seems to be saying, unless you have a reason to believe otherwise. So going back to that example, like, you know, looking at a phone, imagine I didn't have any context. It was just I just was reading a script of someone's chat and it said that's sick. Now, what would be my default assumption if I were to read that? Would my default assumption be that it would be literal or that it would be figurative? The default assumption is usually that it's literal, right? Um, so that's kind of what we go through when we're talking about the Quran. And the reason that some scholars will say that, look, what we understand from the Luhur, what we understand from the text seems to indicate that, you know, Prophet Adam salam, that all of us currently are from the progeny of Prophet Adam salam. That's what the text seems to tell us. But let's say, and this is something that Shaykh Mutahari and a few other scholars say as well, let's say the day came where we now knew for a fact, and 100% for a fact, and this is probably not going to happen because we don't have time machines where we can go back and see, okay, where did Prophet Adam come from? Um, but if it were to be proven 100%, then we would be able to say that, okay, here, it's meant figuratively. Now, we can say that we know it's meant figuratively because we have a reason that we would understand it figuratively, right? So I know that that, that example is a little bit, I, I think I may have convoluted some of the concepts in there, um, but yeah. yeah. So basically the, the default assumption is what you would take as um, how you would understand something, which is why the default reading that we have of the Quran right now is that, okay, we are descendants of Prophet Adam and that he was miraculously created. So this really goes back to that question of hermeneutics and also Surah Tafsir, which is very important because if we don't have principles, then you see that a lot of us will like kind of just haphazardly interpret the Quran however we want, right? And that's not what we want to do either. There has to be a certain level of principles. And this is actually something that does come up a lot where people will take certain verses and they'll say that, okay, well, it actually means this. And they'll use like, you know, a lot of mental gymnastics or a lot of linguistic gymnastics to try and make the Quran say something that it doesn't actually say, which is why it's very important to have these principles like Zuhur um, and like understanding the text and applying these principles of tafsir and these hermeneutics, et cetera. Okay, so that's really interesting. Um, so kind of building on that, um, so me and Ali were talking about a theory that we saw that God is kind of like, um, in the whole evolution and in science in general, people use God to justify the things that science can't explain. So I saw it referred to as a God of gaps. Um, so whenever there's something that someone can't explain, so um, with like the theory of evolution, um, it, one of the weaknesses that I read about is that the fact that the claim of the whole emergence of species is completely due to chance. But obviously, if you have a religious perspective, then you say that we are here to submit to God. We are here to worship him and please him so that we can obviously have an amazing afterlife. 
So what are your thoughts? Would you say that people are trying to have evolution as an alternative to religion? Um, like, how would you say that the theory of evolution and religion um, works with the ideas of chance? And would you say that with more scientific research, it could reduce God in these conversations? Or like with the more answers we have, will there be less reason for us to use religion as our excuse or our reason to shrink these gaps? I'm not sure if that made sense. Yeah, no, no, it totally makes sense. And it's a, it's an excellent question. Um, I think when we're talking about concepts like chance, they can it, chance can mean a couple of different things, right? So chance can mean that I don't have an explanation on a material level, right? So for example, if I were to flip a coin however many times, I don't have an explanation for why it came out heads 100% of the time versus 50% of the time, if it were to actually happen, right? I don't have um, a physical reason that I could explain to you by telling you, okay, well, the wind did it this way, or I don't know, whatever it might be, right? So I would say that, okay, it's chance. But there's a difference of how we look at words and sometimes the, the baggage that comes with words. So the connotations that come with certain words. Now, for a lot of us in our culture, chance or randomness, and this word random is used a lot in um, discussions on evolution as well, right? So this idea of like random mutations, which is one of the um, core ideas of natural selection. Um, but when we're looking at this idea of words of randomness and chance. It's not that it's impossible for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be a part of those, but it's more that our language kind of alienates God from it, right? And this is a problem that sometimes I think we have in general. Let's say as an example that I, you know, take a lighter and I set something on fire. Now, you're going to say that, okay, well, it's very easy for me to see that I'm the one who did that, right? That I'm the one who set something on fire. And I'm looking at the very physical cause of it. Now, let's say another accidental fire happens and you're trying to figure out what the reason was. Now, the reason there is not as apparent, but there's still a reason. And in both of those scenarios, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who has created me given me the ability to like, you know, do X, Y, Z, or created a process of cause and effects where if I were to, you know, that hydrogen and oxygen have this impact and, you know, these are the physical causes of it. So in all of those cases, even though we're able to describe what's physically happening, that doesn't mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is somehow not a part of the picture. So when we're looking at something like chance and randomness and mutation, there's a lot of implications to these words that I think sometimes like we'll see that a lot of atheists will kind of just take those words and run with them, right? That it's random. You can't see a pattern. Just because you can't see a pattern doesn't mean that it's not intentional, right? Doesn't mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hasn't done it in this way. And so even sometimes in our, in our own colloquial language, I really dislike it when we say like, you know, this is so random or this is a coincidence because it's not really, right? Maybe we're not able to articulate um, some of the we're, maybe we're not able to articulate it in the sense that we're not seeing it in a very obvious way, but it's always under the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Nothing is ever outside of the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I think this comes with, we have a very secular language where we almost take God out of our vocabulary, right? We don't credit Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a lot of the things that are happening in our lives or a lot of the things that happen. We'll just say that it's a coincidence or this was so random, but really it's all under this plan or under the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so when we're looking at evolutionary language, I do think that this is, becomes very problematic, right? Where 
we have this language baggage. Again, I'm going to go with that. It's not a term that anybody else uses except for me. Um, but this language baggage where there's all of these connotations where things are random. And so people will look at it and be like, okay, well, that means that, you know, all of these things happen in a random haphazard way. And then they'll build explanations of it. So right now, if you look at something like evolutionary psychology, there's a whole, um, there's a whole like, I don't want to say industry, there's a whole field of studies that's based on this idea of like, okay, well, looking at this idea that every species tries to survive. Now explain human behavior using this idea of trying to survive, right? And so there's a lot of implications that will then come up from evolutionary psychology saying that, okay, well, because, you know, men used to be hunter gatherers, then this used to happen or this used to happen or that used to happen. And not that there might not necessarily be some truth to that, but just that it's explaining it in a way where we're only physical creatures, where we're only material creatures. It almost robs us of that like metaphysical part of ourselves. So when we're looking at the vocabulary, I do think there is, there's a lot of reason to look at some of the implications of language like that, especially in things like psychology, especially in things like, you know, explaining human behavior or whatever it might be. Um, and there's a very interesting critique um, by Sayyid Hussein Nasser, where he talks about some of these things and he calls evolution a dogma where it's almost become this like, um, like it, the reason why we associate it so much with atheists or so much with materialists is that it has become something, right? So it's, it's very hard to discuss the nuances of this conversation, considering that there is this baggage and we kind of have to figure out, okay, then what vocabulary do we use? How do we explain it in, you know, this way where we're not ignoring Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or God forbid, taking him out of the equation. So I don't know if that answers your question, but again, inshallah, hopefully it does. So just before you go, do you have any final thoughts that you want to leave with our listeners to think about and maybe reflect on? Yeah, just this idea that it's okay to not always have all of the answers. And I think sometimes we struggle with this, right? We want to have the answers to every single thing. We want to know exactly, okay, how, how do we explain this genetic evidence? How do we, you know, discuss Prophet Adam alayhi salam? But it's not always that easy and we may not know. We may never know the answer, but it doesn't, you know, it's not such a serious issue that somehow our faith is going to come crashing if we don't answer this question. So, okay, if I don't know, you know, whether Prophet Adam or Hawa or whatever it is, if I don't know all of the details of their progeny and who they interbred with or whatever it is, is that really going to impact me? Um, my understanding of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that going to impact my responsibility in terms of what I need to do or the type of person that I need to become or this process of spiritual purification that I need to go through. And that's why sometimes the implications of evolution are more problematic in the way that the certain the narrative is built than evolution itself. Because right now, if we're looking at it from the way that a lot of atheists will explain evolution, it's this idea that, okay, human beings are material creatures and we're just trying to look at our physical selves and figuring it out from that angle. But that's not all that we are, right? So it becomes a little bit more of an existential question. But as Muslims, whatever the answer is, we're not going to somehow ignore this more important, crucial part of ourselves, the purpose of our life, the purpose of our existence. And this is something that I like, I struggled with myself but it's okay to not know, right? You know, like it's okay not to always have 
um, all of the answers. And I think that was one thing that this taught me because at the end of my paper, like I can't even tell you that I have an answer for all of this right now. It's just been really, you know, interesting for me to kind of go through the process. And I'm sure there is an answer out there, you know, and inshallah it's something we'll find out one day. But, you know, only Allah knows all of the intricacies of answers to questions like this. And maybe part of our limitation of hum- as, as human beings is not having all of those answers. I think that really kind of leaves us on a nice place to kind of conclude this conversation. Um, I think you summarized it really well that sometimes the language that is used perhaps in the mainstream that kind of has made it a dogma and that's why it is important for us to have conversations like this so that we can develop a language to speak about it. And so I just really want to say thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us. And this has really, really blown my mind, like this whole entire conversation. Like I'm gonna really go to bed mind blown. And especially when honestly. you <laughs> honestly and especially so good. And my favorite part just um was when you spoke about how perhaps there were humans in some sort of form or some sort of other dimension before Prophet Adam, the Nas Nas that the Hadith speak about. I've never ever heard of that and that really blew my mind. Yeah, I've literally never heard of it. I've done so much genetics so many genetics modules and i've never heard of anything like that so this has completely blown my mind and you were like you were so good even the way you explained everything it was so like interesting to hear you made it sound so fun um so thank you so much for answering all our questions as well and inshallah we'll have you back on soon one day so you can clear up and blow up clear up some things and blow our minds a bit more well, thank you guys for having me. It was really wonderful to talk with both of you. Um, please keep me in your doors. And I'm, I'm really glad that, you know, um, the conversation blew your minds. I hope you can still sleep. I'm <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Um, but thank you guys for having me. And, you know, please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. And I think um, for those who are listening later, um, inshallah, we can post the link to the paper. And if there's any questions, please do get in touch, inshallah. <laughs>